On August 31st, if you've got a phone, you can pull out your calendar. If you use your calendar on your phone or just take a note to yourself, August 31st, all campuses are going to gather here uh, at the Delaware campus, and we're going to pray together. And I hope as we do that, we think about the fact that you look in the early church, the book of Acts, you see the church gathering and praying, and that's when God moved uh, most powerfully. You look across the pages of history, and you see that often movements of God are started when his people uh, gather to pray. And so I hope you will join us that night as we as a church gather and we appeal to the Lord and pray to the Lord uh, for his kingdom come. Uh, Let me say, before we move any further, good morning. Good morning. morning. It's good to see you. LifePoint family, welcome back. Everybody doing well? Thumbs up? Yeah? Ready for school? Thumbs down? Yeah. (laughs) I've gotten a very mixed reaction to that, right? A lot of parents like, we're ready, routine. And a lot of kids like, no, no, no. So, hey, we're glad glad for school to be starting. We've been praying for uh, teachers and students, administrators, and moms and dads and our families as we head back to school. Speaking of uh, families, crew kiddos are with us this morning, our kindergarten uh, through fifth grade. I'm I'm not going to make you kids raise your hand, but parents, if you have a crew kid with you, just raise your hand if you've got a crew kid. Hey, can we say, uh, we're glad to have our crew kiddos with us this morning. So our kindergarten through uh, fifth grade are with us this morning, what we call an all-in day. And kiddos, we're thrilled to have you here uh, with us. Welcome. Welcome to Big Church. We, uh, we've got a, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 23. Oh, and one thing I did want to mention as well, speaking of our crew kiddos, we had a summer discipleship adventure uh, that a lot of our kids and parents kind of went on this summer. We talked about those who finished that, who hit kind of every marker. They'd get their name in a hat. We'd draw it out and they could choose a, like a COSI membership or a zoo membership. So the Heinland family won that uh, this morning. The Heinland family said, well done, Heinland family. Yeah. And um, not that there's a right or wrong answer, but make sure you choose the zoo membership, right? Because <clears throat> that's the one I would do. But no, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke 23. We've been in this series now for a long, long time. We've been walking through the gospel of Luke and uh, you've done such a fantastic job. So uh, well done church. We've read through the book of Luke. We've prayed through the gospel of Luke and now we've really been focusing on sharing what we've learned with someone else. And in light of that, next Sunday is what we're kind of calling Easter in August when we're going to talk about the resurrection and we're going to close out studying Luke 24 and talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection. We'll talk about crucifixion this morning and certainly you can't separate the crucifixion and resurrection. So we'll talk about both on both Sundays. But next Sunday is a wonderful opportunity to invite someone, somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Invite that friend or family member or coworker who doesn't have a relationship with Christ and say, look, just come, at least come, right? Listen, even if you don't come back, right? Come, listen, hear the gospel, hear what it is that we celebrate as believers. And so we'll be talking about that next Sunday, Luke 24, closing out our labels series. Now, as we're in Luke 23 this morning, just to give you the context, we mentioned a few weeks ago uh, that Jesus was headed on his way to Jerusalem. And so when we talked about the story of the rich young ruler, and a couple of weeks ago talked about the story of Zacchaeus, and then last week, Jesus in the temple, all of this is happening as he is on his way or as he is in Jerusalem. Um, It is now, we're going to get this morning, we've skipped a couple of chapters. And so Jesus has shared the last supper with his disciples. He has spent the night in the garden of Gethsemane praying to the father to strengthen him before he's then betrayed by one of his own disciples, one of his own friends, uh, Judas. And he's arrested and he's put on trial and he's whipped and he's beaten. And then he is sent off to be crucified. And that's where we pick up in Luke 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. 
When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. That is basically they rolled dice and divided up his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And the account is dripping with irony here because we know, right, as those of us reading it, it's, they're looking at Jesus saying, man, if you're the son of God, then why don't you save yourself? Do something, save yourself. And Jesus, though he doesn't say it, could look back at them and saying, I'm choosing not to save myself because I'm saving you. I'm hanging on the cross and staying on the cross. I could save myself if I wanted to, but I'm not because I'm saving you. Verse 38, there was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were uh, hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He's mocking him. But the other criminal rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. In other words, this is what we deserve for the life we've lived. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. These two criminals, we're not gonna stay here for long, but these two criminals, just to note, in some ways are representative of, of the entire book of Luke, the entire gospel, and the, the two reactions to Jesus. They're confronted with Jesus, and you've got one who continues to mock and scorn and disbelieve and dies in his sin, and one who comes to his senses and pleads for mercy and receives forgiveness. In some ways, they're representative of the groups that we've seen all throughout the Gospel of Luke, some mocking and continuing to scorn, and some saying, Lord Jesus, I think I need mercy. Can you forgive me? Now, verse 44, it says, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. I, again, I'm not going to stay here uh, for super long, but I just want to note something here, the significance of that moment. You say, why, was the, why, why does Luke bother to tell us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two? So in Jerusalem, at the temple where everybody came to worship. So kids, picture like a big church building, basically. And in that church building, right, there were these different places. And you could go here if you were a certain person. You get a little closer to the center of God's activity if you were another person. But then there was this place called the Holy of Holies. And it was like this room that was separated. A curtain was there that separated that room from all the other rooms. And one person one time a year was allowed to go into that room. And that was the high priest. And the high priest had to consecrate himself, which meant he had to basically clean himself up as much as he possibly could, as much as humanly possible, had to cleanse himself from all sin and dirtiness so that he could go into the Holy of Holies because it was thought that's where God's presence is. And, and sin can't dwell with God's presence. So what is the significance of the fact that the temple that separates God's presence from everyone else is ripped from top to bottom? when Jesus is crucified. It shows us, man, we now have access 
to the very presence of God. Why? Because Jesus Christ took on himself your sin and mine, and he cleaned us up in a way that we could never clean ourselves. And by trusting in Christ, by turning from your sin and saying, Jesus, I just trust you that what you did at the cross was enough. You're in Christ, and in Christ, you get to stand in the very presence of God unashamed because your sin has been washed away. And so the curtain is torn in two, showing, man, the Lord, you have access to him, right? It's open. You can come to the Father and be in the very presence of God unashamed. In fact, the Apostle Paul will later on tell us in the New Testament, there's really no need for a physical temple anymore. Why? Because we are the temple, that you and I, as, as the body of Christ, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. It's incredible. I mean, you think about for a thousand years or more, people have had this thought like, we can't be in God's presence. And then Jesus, as he takes sin, says, man, the presence of God is open because you're cleansed by his sacrifice. That's the significance of the temple being torn or the curtain being torn in two from top to bottom. Verse 46, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion, the Roman soldier, saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. What I want to do is just uh, give a couple of observations. It's going to be pretty straightforward this morning. And when we close, we're going to take communion together and celebrate this very thing, what Jesus has done for us. But a few observations first. One, this, what just happened, has always been the plan. This has always been the plan. Jesus dying on a cross for the sins of you and me and the very people who are mocking him and murdering him. There's a book, uh, I've referenced it before by Kevin DeYoung. I've got it here with me, actually. It's called The Biggest Story. And um, The Biggest Story, it's a children's book, right? Crew Kids, this is actually for you. I read this uh, to my kids and parents. I would highly recommend it. It's great. Uh, it's called How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. Which you're like, that sounds strange. It's good, I promise, right? Um, but in the book, he talks about a Genesis 3 at the fall when mankind turns away from God. He says, this is the second saddest day in the history of the world. You say, what's the saddest day? says this, the crucifixion is the saddest day in the world when the perfect sinless son of God and all his innocence was crushed for you and me. And yet at the same time, it was the plan. I'll read it to you, right? A little story time with Cale here, right? Page 104. <clears throat> but the biggest surprise to everyone was that the chosen one of God was chosen by God to die. It just didn't seem right that the one destined to crush the serpent, to crush Satan, would be crushed himself. So when Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God, died on the cross that Friday afternoon, it seemed a shocking evil beyond belief. And it was the worst thing that's ever happened in the world. But it was also the best thing that's ever happened in the world. Just as we would expect from God. And just as God planned it. We break promises so God keeps his. We run from God, so he comes to us. We suffer for sin, so the Savior suffers for us. Our story is the story of God doing what we can't in order to make up for us doing what we shouldn't. And the Christ suffers for our sin 
so that we might share in his sinlessness. This has always been the plan. When you look at the story arc of scripture, right? You go back to the garden. From the very garden, this is the plan. Adam turns away from God. Sin enters into the world and breaks it. And so God sends the second and better Adam to come for his people and to bring us back to the garden, to bring us back into relationship with him. And it's always been that way. That's always been, it wasn't like Adam and Eve sinned and then God was like, I got to figure out plan B. I did not see this coming. But rather, all throughout the Old Testament, you see these hints, these foreshadowings, and sometimes these direct statements about this is what's going to happen, is that God is going to send someone. Perhaps the most famous is Isaiah 53, seven, eight hundred years before Jesus was ever born, the prophet speaks about this suffering servant, the son of suffering, and he says this, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, why would God crush his son? Why would the father crush his own son? Why? That he might be pierced, pierced with the nails for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is the plan. There's some Bibles that, um, it's really cool in the New Testament, certain Bibles, if you read in the New Testament, every time the Old Testament is quoted, it's in bold. So you get to see visually just how often the New Testament writers are like, look, this was a fulfillment of what happened back here. Look, this was a fulfillment of what happened back here. And it is all over this passage. Luke, almost every verse in the narrative I just read you has some Old Testament reference telling us this was the fulfillment. This isn't random. It's the fulfillment of God's plan. I'll give you just a sampling. Verse 32, when the criminals are executed with him, one on his right, one on his left, Isaiah 53, 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the criminals. Verse 34, when they cast lots for his clothing. That's a quote from Psalm 22, verse 18, that they cast lots for my clothing. Verse 35, 37, and 39, talking about people mocking him and wagging their heads and looking at him, scorning him, saying, save yourself. That's a reference to Psalm 22, 7 and 17. Verse 44, when the darkness comes over the land. That was prophesied by Amos in chapter 8, verse 9. Verse 46, when Jesus calls out and says, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's a direct quote from Psalm Psalm 31, verse 8. The point is, this has always been the plan. From the garden, God has looked and saw what was going to happen, had a plan, mankind's going to turn away from me, and then I'm going to send my son into the world, and he will be the second and better Adam, and he won't listen to the snake, he will crush the snake, but he'll do that by being crushed for you and for me. Hung on the cross, taking sin upon himself for sinners and sufferers like us. And it's a tragedy, but it's a planned tragedy. It's a tragedy, but it's a God-ordained, foreordained tragedy where through it, the purpose of it is the salvation of you and me and everyone who will turn from sin and look to Jesus, the Savior on the cross. Now, I just want to sit there for a moment because one of the things that we're going to go a little deeper into this, right? One of the things that struck me as in reading this is when you zoom out, it's, maybe for you it's become so familiar, right? You're like, yes, of course Jesus hung on the cross. And, but when you zoom out and look at it, like the absurdity of all of it, seemingly, the insanity and the injustice and just the ridiculous nature of what's happening here. So, so zoom out again and think, right? God sends his son in the flesh. That alone is insane that Jesus would be like, I'm going to leave heaven, come to earth as a baby, submit myself to human parents. What is that like? 
right? What is it like to be God and then say, I'm going to listen to people that I created and put myself under their authority for a while. And then he grows up and starts his public ministry. And at this point in time, Jesus, the perfect sinless son of God, has spent three years healing people, raising people from the dead, taking care of people, preaching the kingdom, giving widows back their sons. Like he's done nothing but good. And then he's murdered by his own people. I heard a pastor say it so well this week. He said, look, he's hanging on a cross. He's been pierced with nails that were created by the metal that he created. God creates metal. Mankind pulls the metal up, fashions them into nails, and then pierces the creator with the stuff he created. God creates trees, and his people that he created take the trees, fashion it into wood, into a cross, and then hang him on it. The creator is being hung by his creation, lifted up not to a throne, but to a cross, hung naked as a spectacle before men and women with criminals on either side. You're looking at this going, this is insane. It's, and it's the worst thing that could be possibly imagined that the sinless son of God would be treated this way by people like you and me. His own creation. And you would think in reading that moment, when this is the moment, as everybody's looking at Jesus and the rulers are scoffing at him and spitting at him and saying, save yourself. I, I read it and I thought, man, it would be totally just if this moment, if Jesus was like, now's my moment, right? Like, I'm gonna call the angels down and just decimate everybody who ever dared mock me or scorn me. Like, this is the moment where God is gonna just take it out. And instead, what do we hear Jesus say? As his created beings look at him and mock him and scorn him, what do we hear him say? Verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Oh, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand, so please forgive them. And you look and you think, man, like this is what Luke has been telling us all along, right? That the Son of Man, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to what? to seek and to save the lost. He came for broken people, for the poor, but also for the rich. He came for people, anyone who would turn from their sin and say, look, I need you, Jesus. He came for broken people. And when you think about it, I don't know if you've ever wondered this, like what kind of God does this? What kind of God offers mercy to the people who are currently in the act of murdering him, people that he created? What kind, of what kind of God loves and pleads for the forgiveness for people who are mocking him, who are spitting in his face, and who have put him up on a cross? What kind of God offers mercy and forgiveness and prays actively, God forgive people like that? But let's make it really personal, right? What kind of God offers mercy to people like you and me who repeatedly turn from him, if we're honest, right, who take his blessings and then often forget him, who enjoy the world he created, who breathe his air, drink his water, walk on his ground, but often refuse to acknowledge him or worship him or center our lives around him. People, I mean, let's, let's be honest, church, right? How often do we know the right thing to do and we just don't do it? <laughs> we know what the wrong thing is, we do it anyway. How often do we turn and, right, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love? What kind of God offers mercy to people like you and me? And the answer is the God of the Bible. 
Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who stepped out of heaven, the son of suffering, acquainted with our grief, who took our sin, who went to the cross, and there the creator hung by his creation while he hangs there says, oh Lord, show him mercy. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is our God. And there is no one like him in all the earth. This is our God. And if you came here today thinking Christianity, man, it's some sort of like do better, do more, get your life together. No, like this is the heart of it. The son of suffering on the cross for you and for me. And then on the third day, God raised him from the grave and he promises because he lives, you too will live. Forgiveness and freedom purchased for us because of Jesus on the cross. Now, the second thing I note, the gospel exceeds our most generous notions of grace. The gospel exceeds even our most generous notions of grace. I'm thinking particularly about the thief on the cross here in this moment where Jesus looks at him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So Matthew tells us, right, this thief, this criminal earlier was mocking Jesus along with the other guy. Apparently as he suffers, at some point in time in the suffering process, he has a change of heart. He looks over his life and he takes responsibility for what he's done. I'm here because of what, that's what he tells the other thief, right? We're here because of what we've done. But then he looks at Jesus, right? And he says, basically, I know I don't deserve it, but Jesus, could you save me? Right? Could you have mercy on me? Could you rescue me from my sin? I'm here because I deserve it, but you're innocent. Could you make me innocent? And Jesus says what? Yeah. (laughs) Today, you'll be with me in paradise. So this man who threw away his earthly life and made a mess of his earthly life at the last moment receives eternal life. And let's just be honest, some of us really struggle with that, don't we? You're like, really? (laughs) You just do whatever you want your whole life and then the last moment you ask for forgiveness on your deathbed and everything's good? Let me ask you a question. How are we saved? Are we saved by our good works and the moral life we lived? Or are we saved by the mercy of God? Are we saved? Let me ask again, right? How are we saved? Are we saved by by something we earn? Do we achieve it and earn it by being a good person and following the rules? Or is salvation something we receive as a free gift by grace through faith because Jesus died in our place and rose again? The answer is the second one, by the way, right? It's the latter. And listen, I, no, the point is not to live your life saying, I'll just do whatever I want and then I'll ask forgiveness. That's not genuine. The repentance has to be genuine, okay? It has to be genuine. And listen, the Holy Spirit can save somebody at age six or at age 96, all right? And praise God. If it's age six, praise God. Crew kids, look at me, right? Middle school, high school students up here. College students, right? Six, 16, 22, 23. If God saves you now and you commit your life to him, you receive Christ into your life, the Holy, same Holy Spirit that works in kiddos and you as he does in adults. If God saves you and you commit your life to him, God can use you and will use you in incredible ways. And praise God, you will not get to the end of your life and look back and say, I wish I'd have done something else. 
you'll say, man, God has been so faithful to me my whole life long. Commit your life to him now. He's worth it. He's so good. And he's the only one who has life. And praise God if that happens right now in your life or has already happened. Commit your life to him fully. But listen, for those of us who are older, right? If you're 96, 86, 76, and you're looking over your life with tons of regret, man, praise God that God can still save people. (laughs) Praise God. Maybe it happens at age six, great. But at age 96, also praise God for his mercy that he is pursuing us till the final breath. If you're still breathing, this is a good reminder, it's not too late to get right with God, that you can find him today. It can happen at age six, age 26, 56, 96, in the comfort of your own home, hanging on a cross, or right here this morning, sitting in that chair. You can get right with God. You can receive the mercy of God. Why? Because grace meets us right where we are. That's the final thing. Grace meets us right where we are. A thief on the cross didn't clean himself up first. He didn't have time to. Didn't have the opportunity to like, I need to start getting into a Bible study. And I need to go, right? I need to get into a small group, right? And I need to, like he's hanging on a cross. All he has is Jesus, forgive me. I love, there's a clip. Uh, I almost put it up to show it this morning of Alistair Begg, an older pastor that some of us may know. And he, he talks about this little clip on the man on the middle cross, right? And he talks about how this thief gets into heaven and how, I mean, he gets into heaven and he's like, he's got no church membership. (laughs) He's got no, like, are you clear on this doctrine or on this doctrine? How much have you studied your Bible? I have no idea, right? I mean, and he basically walks through the routine of like, why are you here? And the guy's just like, because the man on the middle cross said I could come. (laughs) That's it. Grace, undeserved. Favor, undeserved. The forgiveness of sin, undeserved. And look, again, I'm not saying that you just receive it and you do whatever you want. That, that, that means you haven't been transformed by grace. If you've received the grace of God, it begins to change the way you live. But praise God, you don't clean yourself up first. You just come to Jesus as you are. And he does the cleaning. We have a guy who, um, he'd been attending here for just a couple of months. And uh, I know we've got small kiddos here, so I won't go into this in detail, but he was recently... Uh, shot and killed, right? Uh, His life was not all put together. His life was still messy. But you know what? Grace met him right where he was. He texted some of us shortly before he died about how much he'd been reading his Bible for the first time in his life. He said, I think God has given me ears to hear and eyes to see. He said, I've read Matthew and Luke and Acts and John, and now I'm starting on Mark. What should I read next? I think grace met him right where he was. And some of us think it's so deep-seated, right? I know some of us have heard this a lot of times, but some of us still think, and we go back to, I feel it in my own heart. Yeah, but I got to clean myself. I got to do some work here. You can't clean yourself up enough. You come to Jesus you receive the grace of God. You look to the cross, him hanging on the cross. You, you, you can try to justify yourself. M- much of the book of Luke, much of the gospel of Luke has been us looking at people who tried to justify themselves and say, look at all my good works and I'm not like this person. And, and Luke just telling us over and over and Jesus saying it over and over, you can't justify yourself. You can't clean yourself up enough. But you know what you can do? 
you can cast yourself upon the mercy of God and be justified. You look to the cross and you see Jesus hanging there and you sing as we did earlier, your cross, my freedom, your stripes, my healing, all praise King Jesus. For Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. That's the meaning of the crucifixion. It's not just a guy dying on a cross. It is the son of God, murdered and slain, taking on the wrath of God for the sin of you and me. And because he rose again three days later, we know that it worked, <laughs> that God really is satisfied. And you and I, when we are in Christ, we are seen by the Father as spotless, righteous, and whole, totally forgiven. And that can happen in your life today. If you're here today and you're a Christian, here's my parting encouragement to you. If you're here today and you're a believer, I know, I know, and, and I've not walked through what some of you are walking through right now, right? Everybody's got their own struggles and I know enough to know life sometimes is dark Life sometimes is hard, sometimes it's messy, and some seasons just aren't that great. But I also know that no matter what, you and I always, always, always have reason for joy because our sins have been washed away, because Jesus hung on the cross in our place, and now the tomb is empty. So you've always got reason for joy. You are seen as spotless and righteous by your heavenly Father, and you're loved by Him. And if you ever question that, you look back to the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever, whosoever. Children at age six, happy six-year-old, whosoever. Depressed or anxious teenager, college student trying to figure out your life, whosoever. Middle-aged man or woman trying to navigate the complexities of family and work and everything else in 21st century, li 21st century life. Empty nester, trying to figure out what's next. Whosoever, the old, the young, the rich, the poor, the haves, the have-nots, black, white, brown, whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is the gospel. It's the good news. And if you're here today and you don't know it, and you've never stepped into a relationship with Jesus, today, right now, you can be washed clean and start anew in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, as we prepare to take communion here in a moment, first, God, I pray, I pray for those of us who are believers, God, for your family. Will you encourage us this morning, Lord? Will you lift our eyes to the cross when we feel alone? As Wesley talked about earlier, when we feel doubtful of whether you love us, you demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh God, will we look to the cross and just be reminded you loved us so much that you died for us, took our sin and our shame 
that we might be made whole and forgiven. God, let us look to the empty tomb and be reminded that life does not end at the grave. Death is just the doorway into resurrection life. Father, will you encourage us this morning? In the midst of the dark seasons, in the midst of the dark moments, in the midst of the doubt, Father, lift our eyes to see Jesus. And then for those of us who are here, and as we just, I want to give you a moment to pray. If you're here this morning and you've never stepped into a relationship with Jesus, that is the gospel. We are sinners, broken, and cannot fix ourselves. You can't fix yourself. And you may have tried. You may have listened to the million cultural voices telling you how you can find freedom or success or joy in someone or something else. This morning, I just present to you what the gospel presents, what the scriptures present, and that is life and forgiveness are found in no one else but Jesus and him alone. And this morning, if you will turn from your sin and like the thief on the cross, take responsibility and say, I am a sinner and broken. Jesus, I believe you can save me by what you did at the cross. And you can take that step today. You pray with me. You pray in your own words. Jesus, I confess my sin. I'm not rationalizing it or justifying it. I'm acknowledging it. I am a sinner in need of a savior. And Jesus, I believe you are that savior. And today, right now, I ask for the forgiveness of my sin. I place my life in your hands and I receive the forgiveness that you bought for me with your blood and your body broken at the cross. And I thank you that because you live, I too will live. Lord, we love you and we thank you and God, we praise you for any who have made, may just have prayed that with us, God, for the first time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.